Welcome to From What If to What Next, your favourite podcast. The one that gets your imagination all of a quiver and feeling loved and appreciated. I'm your host and companion Rob Hopkins and it's my huge delight to welcome you back here for another adventure into what a more imaginative world would be like. Here we're all about the cultivation of longing. If by the end of this conversation you find yourself longing for a different future, then our work is done. While I have you, I must just mention that while you might find yourself listening to this episode on one of the many platforms where it's freely available, and you're most welcome, I must just point out that if you enjoy what we do, if you've enjoyed this episode, we'd be most grateful if you might consider subscribing to enable us to keep doing this. It would mean you'd get the latest episodes the moment they're released, our seminal bonus Ministry of Imagination episodes and more besides, all for just £3 a month. Do consider it, it really helps. Subscribe at patreon.com slash from what if to what next and be the envy of everyone on your street. Today we're talking about fast fashion. It's estimated that 8% of the world's total carbon emissions are generated by the fast fashion industry, more than international shipping and aviation combined. In 2019, the world spent £25.8 billion on clothes, and that figure is still rising. One in three young women reportedly consider a garment to be old once they've worn it once or twice. The average person in the US throws away £81 in weight of clothing every year, and the majority of that ends up in landfill. Making those clothes has huge impacts in terms of the herbicides and pesticides used to grow the raw materials, or the 1.5 trillion litres of water used to make them, and the microplastics that get washed out of the synthetic fibres that now make up the majority of our clothes and into the sea. It's estimated that fast fashion is now to blame for between 20 and 35% of microplastics in our oceans. And 93% of brands don't pay their garment workers a living wage, and working conditions and worker rights are notoriously awful in that industry. So fast fashion is clearly something we need to move away from with great purpose, determination and, might I say, imagination. What if we became more content with the clothes we already have? What if we repaired and customised rather than binned? All of which leads us to our question for today. What if visible mending became the new fast fashion? I'm joined by two amazing guests, both far better dressed than me. Orsola Di Castro is an internationally recognised opinion leader in sustainable fashion. Her career started as a designer with the pioneering upcycling label From Somewhere, which she launched in 1997 until 2014. Her designer collaborations include collections for Jigsaw, Speedo and four best-selling capsule collections for Topshop from 2012 to 2014. In 2006, she co-founded the British Fashion Council initiative Estethica at London Fashion Week, which she curated until 2014. In 2013, with Carrie Summers, she founded Fashion Revolution, a global campaign with participation in over 90 countries around the world. She's a regular keynote speaker and mentor, associate lecturer at UAL, as well as Central St. Martin's Visiting Fellow. Her first book, Loved Clothes Last, is published by Penguin Life, Corbaccio Editore in Italy, and in France by Edition Marabou. And Flora Collingwood Norris is a knitwear designer, maker and mender based in the Scottish borders. Balancing ethical, colourful knitwear and visible mending, she champions natural fibres and the skills needed to make your clothing last. In August 2012, Flora published her book, 
visible creative mending for knitwear to share her repair knowledge and encourage others to have a sustainable wardrobe that's unique and personal. Designed to transcend seasonal trends, Flora's knitwear focuses on colour, often inspired by the Scottish landscapes around her. Her pieces are made in her Galashiel studio on hand-powered knitting machines or in small batches at one of her local factories in Howick, valuing local knowledge and craftsmanship. Welcome both to From What If To What Next. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Well, it's it's about this point in the episode where I fire up my time machine, whose power source is a carefully kept secret, but which enables us to pop to the near future and to check it out. Actually, producer Ben and I took it for a spin last night, and in preparation for today's podcast, we popped back to Canterbury in 1076 to see the final touches being added to the Bayou Tapestry. Amazing to see the stitching skills they had then. And in keeping with our theme today, the stitchers very kindly fixed some holes in our own clothes. So I've got a beautifully embroidered Norman warship now on my sleeve and Ben's got a very fetching King Harold across his chest. Anyway, I'm going to start up the time machine now. Just plug this into this bit and turn that on. Wait for that to light up. Good, right, there we go. Okay, so 2030, right. So I'd love you both, if you might, to imagine that you're travelling through time to 2030, to a time that isn't a utopia, but isn't a dystopia, but rather is the result of our having done everything we possibly could have done. It's a world where fast fashion is now a thing of the past. Everyone now has the skills to make things last and to value that, to repair things. That's now the culture. Our lives, our high streets, everything has transformed. All that work you did in 2021 bore fruit. Well done. Could you describe that world to us? Bring it alive. What does it smell like, feel like, and sound like, and how is it different from what you left behind in 2021, Flora? Um, well, I'm imagining walking through my town of Galashiels, and the people I pass look colourful now, rather than a lot of the grey I saw in 2021. We're all wearing interestingly patched clothes and brighter colours. Our repairs are uh, a celebration, a joy of the ageing process. So we look more like individuals. As trends are a thing of the past, they went out with fast fashion. There's an eclectic mix of styles with everybody choosing to wear what feels comfortable and what suits them, rather than the latest trend. Every repair tells a story and brings a personal element to people's clothing, whether that was the story of a little puppy that chewed their jumper or the moth holes, or maybe it was something that belonged to a grandmother. We have more connection to our clothing now. The people I pass look happier. Now there's a, there's a universal basic income which is allowing us to spend time repairing our clothes um, because the repair process can take, um, can take time. So the universal basic income allows that. The process is good for our mental health. It reduces stress and anxiety and helps create a sense of well-being, along with the satisfaction of making something functional and whole again as well as making it beautiful at the same time. By repairing clothes, we've created a deeper connection with them. They hold more meaning for us. Um, and we feel calmer as, as a result of spending the time slowly repairing them. I'm passing repair shops and cafes as I walk where people are sharing skills and helping others to renew the items they already own. Because visible mending is now the norm, this attitude to repair has spread beyond clothing. So there's a range of repair specialists on my high street, whether it's for outerwear, furniture, shoes, electricals. 
any goods you have, there's now somebody who can help you fix them. It's become a, a sort of frame of mind, this how can I repair it? How can I make things last longer? In schools, there's more emphasis on the arts now, cultivating imagination and teaching craft skills from the very beginning so that children are able to start thinking creatively for themselves and start putting skills into action straight away. Maybe it's just a case of replacing a button or maybe they want to customise the clothes that they have and make them more fun. But the arts feeds, feeds that, whether it's music, dancing, stitching, they all come together to create this sense of creativity that we now have in society. Universities now teach design using repurposed material so that the new emerging designers um, are coming into the world with really exciting, fresh ideas for using all the clothing we have from the decades of fast fashion that are still, still with us. So there's an exciting new set of designers. And society looks back, I don't want to use the word shame, but we look back, yeah, regretfully at the two pound t-shirts. Now that making skills are highly valued, um, people are willing to have less, um, maybe pay a bit more for them, but really look after the things we own. And it's generated a, a happier society where we feel a bit more fulfilled about the clothes that we have and has created more meaningful connections. Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you so much, Flora. Uh, Ursula? So I'm going to be talking about repairs, but also the reparations that I want to see in 10 years' time or that I can see if I am outside of now and into then. So, yeah, fast fashion is a thing of the past. But luxury has returned to being what it was, 100% traceable and made from materials that enhance our soil and by people who are adequately and dignifiedly paid throughout the fashion supply chain. All supply chain workers have a dignified living wage and all of their working conditions are safe ensuring that their environment is safe because the environment, after all, is something that we all share. When it comes to where I'm standing now, I'm sitting actually, I'm in my studio, so I think, what would I have 10 years from now that I don't have now? Well, just as I am privileged enough to have a cleaning lady, I'm eagerly awaiting for the arrival of my wardrobe nurse Someone that comes every month and ensures that all of the hems of my skirts are up because after all, I wear and rewear the same clothes at the same time. I mean, a lot of the time. So maintenance is fundamental for them. So I'm privileged. I can have this service. My wardrobe is curated and is constantly monitored as it what it needs. Some clothes, as many people who have read my book will know, I like to leave to break. But the ones that need mending are mending. And this is happening throughout my household in anything that is textile. An old pair of jeans turns into a cushion cover. And this rhythm is continual. While right now, I have to be honest, it's pretty disorganized. But for those who don't have that same economic opportunity, every single fast fashion stores provides cheap clothing. Because I don't believe that we can get rid of cheap fashion. We will need cheap fashion for those who can't buy better except that cheap fashion will have been turned around because the brands will have understood that it is entirely their responsibility 
to provide with those customers that don't have the economic viability to buy these beautiful, incredibly 100% traceable and transparent luxury. So a cheaper product will be made of innovative materials, will be made of recyclable materials, and repairs, cheap repairs, as affordable as the clothes, will be available in store. This will have increased uh, a sense of um, understanding of how our clothing are made, um, and it will have precipitated a whole bunch of semi-industrial techniques, such as upcycling at source, runs of pieces that come out wrong, or kilometers of fabrics that are dyed the wrong color will be reused from the industry where that defect occurs and reintroduced within the market rather than become waste. In essence, we will look at all surplus and we will be preventing it from becoming waste. On my high street, recycling of textile is adequately explained. Uh, we know where the technologies have advanced in terms of recycling mixed fibers, but we also know that recycling is not a panacea, that anything that comes from a great excess can only carry a great carbon footprint. So we really are encouraged as a society to share, to mend, to make things last, but above all, to keep. We've switched from being a throwaway society to a keeping society. And our culture, our influencers, our you know, way of seeing things is geared to understanding longevity um, and and that's it. Fabulous. Fabulous. Wow, thank you both. That was wonderful. And so I'd like to start, you know, invisible mending seems to be an idea that's on the rise, being embraced by fashion schools and designers and others, and certainly uh, Instagram where people are really able to share their work is is helping a huge amount. I wonder if first we might start by uh, what is visible mending and where is it at in our culture right now? Uh, Ursula? Well, I think probably Flora better in the sense that even though I've written a whole book on darning and repairing, as I said, for me, I always start from the sort of metaphor. What I can tell you is that in terms of arts and culture and in terms of aesthetics, uh, whether you look at textile art or whether you look at high fashion, it's never really not been there. You know, it gets taken, abandoned in this kind of cyclical pendulum that are aesthetic trends. But, you know, whether in shame or in glory, it's it's been with us pretty much forever. I would say that now, you know, it's, um, it's certainly on the surface when it comes to uh, a very strong aesthetic, at least in my experience looking at the work of, um, of emerging designers. Um, I see the type of upcycling stroke, um, you know, visible upcycling, mending, and so on and so forth, that really, really strengthens its aesthetic uh, narrative and storytelling value. So it, it's certainly, to me, at an all-time, or maybe not an all-time high, but at, at a certain high. Flora? Um, I would also agree that it's um, it's now at a, a high um, and becoming more more prominent and more talked about, which is fantastic to see. And for me, visible mending, I mean, it, it's sort of in the name, but it's a repair that's visible. Um, so you're not trying to hide it. And a lot of the 
repair work I see and a lot of the repair work I do, it's it's almost like a hybrid between darning and repair skills and embroidery and embellishment. So it can be purely functional or it can be it can be decorative as well. And it can almost also be sort of customizing clothes. So it's a it's a way of turning something old into something that looks fresher again, I suppose, maybe more personal. And I really enjoy that because I think it makes it very accessible for people to do at home themselves. Because for me, invisible repairs are very challenging and they can often look, you know, if you don't do them well, they're still a little bit seen. So if actually what you wanted was a completely invisible mend on your jumper, you might have created something that looks a little bit like a stain with a sort of semi-invisible mend. So to make them loud and proud is a great way of celebrating flaws and turning your garment into something new. So I love this kind of, for me, it's an idea of aging gracefully um, and celebrating the aging of clothes. Beautiful. And, and and I've seen some pictures of some of the, the stuff that you've done. It's it's incredible. It would be great to hear from you both a story about a particular garment that you visibly mended, what you did to it and why, and then the impact that it had on you, on, on, on somebody who did it for. Flora, is there is there a particular story that you'd like to share with us? Well, I'm very lucky and I have I've managed to work on quite a few garments that all have lovely stories to them. But um, <laughs> I thought today I'd wear one of my own garments, which you sadly can't see because it's a podcast. Um, but it's a blue cashmere sweater that my mum found in a charity shop. Probably, I think it must be about 20 years ago now. And I've been wearing it on and off since then. And because it's a colour that I love and it was a fit on me that I really liked, I really wanted to look after it. So the elbows were wearing through. Um, so I have used a technique called Swiss darning that mimics the knitted stitch to reinforce and repair the elbows of this jumper. And then I've used embroidery around the elbows. So the elbows are sort of little ovals. And I've used sort of quite vintage style floral embroidery around them, which to me reminds me of my great aunt's um, flower pressing. She used to put beautiful arrangements of press flowers together in little oval frames, which I remember she gave me one of them. Um, and they also remind me of the tea cozies that my mum collected. She has a thing for the vintage embroidery. So I've, you know, that it's sort of things that I grew up with that I've really loved. And then this jumper also had a, a stain on the front, roughly in the middle. So I have embroidered over that and it's made this jumper feel like a new piece for me. It's turned it from something that was, you know, that I enjoyed wearing, but you know, it wasn't maybe that exciting anymore to feeling like a new garment in my wardrobe. And I now get really excited when I wear it. It's um, something fun. It's it's very me. Um, it has the colours that I like. It has, you know, patterns, a sort of design that's quite, you know, it's very personal to me and meaningful to me. Um, and it's completely changed the way I think about it. Fabulous. Ursula? Well, I mean, everything I am, the person that I am today, the career that I have um, embarked on um, starts with a jumper with a hole. So I was invited um, at the time I was, you know, printing on fabrics and blah, 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 making crochet hats and, you know, just quite young and having young children. But I was invited to this really very, very fancy event and I just wanted to wear my orange jumper. But my orange jumper was covered in holes and um, stains. So I'm not a particularly good sewer mender, but I am a absolutely proficient at crochet which I learned from my grandmother when I was six so I took yarn and uh, some beads 
And I basically crocheted around every single hole in that jumper. And it had a lot. And I off I went to my hugely, um, incredibly glamorous arts dinner. And within a few days, um, I had so many people starting to give me their old jumpers from their husbands or their own wardrobes, which had holes. My brand from somewhere was born um, very shortly after that. We started selling at The Cross, which was um, then the kind of super mega cool store I'm talking about, the end of the 90s. Um, at you know where she where all young young designers were were featured and you know from mending holes on jumpers but leaving the hole visible because that was my you know the crochet was around the hole I went on to becoming you know a, a brand that actually used huge amounts of both um, post-consumer waste so secondhand things like the jumper but expanded it to all sorts and then pre-consumer waste it led me to um, working with with pre-consumer waste and warehouse waste for the big brands you mentioned when you kindly introduced me um, and it completely opened that tiny little hole opened up for me this universe that is the fashion supply chain and obviously I got into it via the concept of waste and reimagining waste and loving things that are there and wanting them, wanting to keep them. But, um, you know, the rest is, is where I, I end up. It's fashion revolution. So although you both teach people how to do it, isn't the problem that people are so, so busy at the moment and most likely don't have the time for all the stitching that visible mending requires, although they, we all seem to manage to find a huge amount of time for Netflix and Facebook in our lives. But, and to pay people a living wage to do that would make it the preserve of the privileged. And mending was always a necessity for, 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 for poorer families, one that cheap fashion has largely made redundant. So how do we stop visible mending just being the preserve of the wealthy, uh, Ursula? Well, I mean, as I said, as I mentioned previously, the first and the main responsibility is on brands. You know, brands that produce cheap clothing have an obligation to um, encourage affordable mending. So what we mean here by visible mending, obviously, Flora and I both talk about the aesthetic value of a visible mended jumper that is just like a slogan T-shirt in the end. You know, it says, I care, I repair. What more than a visible mending, mended jumper or piece of clothing can tell you? But the responsibility to make mending um, democratic and available to all lies with those brands. I mean, we've been pervaded with this narrative, invaded by this narrative that fast fashion is so badly made that it doesn't warrant being mended. And we've kind of believed this for 20 years. Now, this is incredibly dangerous and has been deleterious to the planet. The reality is that actually it's the other way around. Something which is simply made it's pretty simple to repair. I mean, you know, I wouldn't attempt myself to, you know, delve into a sort of a French seam from some vintage piece I've got. But I mean, picking up a hem of a Zara skirt, I mean, frankly, you know, no one is going to notice any different. So it really is absolutely 100% on brands to, to affect that kind of you know, uh, uh, mending in supermarkets and, and, and online, same thing. I mean, you know, if they can mastermind returns, they can mastermind mending online. So it really is a question of commitment and, and, and putting yourself into it. At the same time, um, it is a skill that, you know, wasn't, I mean, although very female, 
uh, all men in the military knew how to re-sew a button, uh, you know, and, and, and take basic care of their textiles when that wasn't just clothing, it was also blankets um, and, and, and bags. So it, is, it isn't necessarily a, a female-led skill, it's a skill that everybody needs to relearn because it's true, you know, if there is one thing that we've seen is that speed has completely killed all skills and um, as a result, uh, you know, we do need to reintroduce the skill, um, you know, as widely as possible throughout society in order to defy the elitism that it risks being it right now when it's kind of activism fodder, fodder really in many ways. We're using it as an activism form, but it's still not reintegrated in our societies at all. Mm. Thank you, Flora. Uh, well, I think Ursula put it very well there. I think that, um, yes, I think brands should be uh, responsible for offering repair services and caring for their clothes. But also, I think we should be teaching it in schools. I think people need to learn this so that it's a skill everybody comes out with. Everybody just has. This shouldn't be a skill that few people have. It, yeah, it should be widely shared, widely taught and widely enjoyed because I think there's a huge satisfaction in it. And I realized that <laughs> I already love textile skills, so I'm very biased, but it's really, you know, it's a little bit addictive. It's very calming. It's very relaxing. It's quite repetitive. So your mind can wander while you work. There are lots of great benefits to doing this, but it does take time. And so maybe that's, you know, I think a universal income would really help that if we weren't also stressed about running around and making a living. We need we need to be given that time or we need to make time. But then maybe that's also about owning less. You know, we don't have to own, I don't know, 10 or 12 pairs of jeans each and however many T-shirts and whatever. If we cared for the ones we had, less of everything so that we have more time for things somehow. I don't quite understand how we never have time for... Mm. For these things i i don't have enough time to repair either and i'd like more of it the, the the focus of this the focus of this podcast is is on imagination and how to make society more imaginative if we lived in a world where visible mending was the norm in the creative kind of creative way you guys advocate and in the way that you talked about uh when we went in the time machine how would that help make society more imaginative and more able to imagine different possibilities and different possible futures uh, flora well, I always think one creative idea leads to another. So I think as soon as people start repairing their clothing and start trying to make it creative and visible, um, and by creative, I, I don't necessarily mean anything complicated. I mean, just picking a bright color that you like to repair with rather than on your gray sweater using gray. Um, I think just making it fun. I think that then leads to other ideas. And, you know, for me, it then goes, well, what else can I repair in my life? What else can I make? fun maybe it's a chip in a cup or a plate you know maybe I just color them over gold or something um, and highlight that it's there rather than buying something or sort of finding a new one so I think as soon as you start it instantly fuels the imagination of what what could come next mm. yeah, I was just seeing the other day of a guy who fills in cracks in the pavement with mosaics so where there's chips off the pavement adds bits of mosaic in for a really rather lovely yeah I've seen some photos of that fantastic yeah, uh, Ursula, what would your thoughts be? Well, I mean, personally, I think it, again, as I, as I said, it, it's not just about repairs, it's about reparations. And, you know, we are looking at a future 
in which we're going to be having to give back land, both to nature and to people from whom it was stolen. So what, what I would like to see is repair being considered the first step. So yes, repairing one's own clothing is, is, a, is a fantastic first step towards uh, the longevity of your own clothes. And as it's, as it's a joyous effort and one that looks amazing, it will have an incredible impact in terms of uh, you know, encouraging your neighbours to do the same. This in itself is a slowing down of the system because obviously if you're repairing, you're not buying. It's a kind of a reflection on the concept of new. Is something repaired a new new? It's a reflection on ownership, whether you decide to repair and swap and so on and so forth. But what I would like to see is the concept of repairing where we've made a lot of damage. So how can we, for instance, create new form um, of, uh, um, of artisans, create new artisanal skills from the waste that we've generated already, from all those clothes that we've chucked away and we haven't repaired, and which are in landfills, and those landfills are in countries that we have already been exploiting for, for, for centuries. So how can we instead turn all of that waste into a resource and how can we, with the skills of repair, which are the same skills that we're talking about, actually empower a whole generation to both um, clean up and to a certain extent invent a product for the future that comes from that waste and regenerates into, into something of, of real and proper use. So, you know, again, I try to, to think of, of, of a global and scalable impact that sort of you know permeates throughout our uh, global culture from the embracing of of the repair concept. I, I read an article in Vox magazine recently by Megan Racklin, who wrote, "Visible mending offers us hope that we can transform our broken present into something better, not by reaching across the aisle or glossing over division, but by building something new from the rubble. It presents a small opportunity to build something good." Taken to its logical conclusion, visible mending has the potential to bring capitalism to its knees. Do you see what you both do as being political? To what extent is visible mending political for you, Osla? You've talked about you've talked about the sort of decolonization in the con in in this context. Well, I mean, you know, the, the, the sort of subtitle of my book is how the joy of re-wearing and repairing your clothes can be a revolutionary act. I mean, of course it is political. Um, and certainly it can, use, can be used as a, as a political metaphor. I mean, you know, it is in defiance of a system that we've been spoon-fed and forced-fed. The, the mere fact of choosing to repair is saying slow down. The mere fact of wanting to care in, 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 you know, during a generation, you know, or a period in history where caring is, is so unvalued uh, in many ways is, is what the act of repair is. So I, I, I can't see it as anything but political. I see it as social as well as, you know, political in the sense that we're defying a stigma that has hurt people for years wearing repairing repaired clothes being a a stigma and so on and so forth so again you know more than ever you know repair and repairing and reparation is what alerts us to the profound intersectionality between what needs to happen from an environmental and a social perspective that the two things are inextricably linked and in that sense for me it just opens 
so many ways of, of further understanding. Beautiful. Thank you. Flora? Yes, I absolutely agree that it's it's political. And even if it doesn't start as that, even if it starts as saving a favourite jumper or a pair of jeans, once you start, you, you want to keep going and it becomes, you know, certainly for me, it becomes a bit of a personal challenge of how long you can keep things lasting without buying new. So you, whether you're consciously making it political or not, it ends up being anti-consumerism and an environmental statement. So yes, absolutely. And I think it, there's so much that can be explored with that. And like Osla said, it, it sort of awakens you to the intersectional sort of issues of environment and politics and yeah, all of that. She said it so much better than I can do that. But, um, <laughs> yes. Great, great. Well, we're, we're, we're drawing to a close and I just wondered if people are listening to this and they're thinking, yes, perhaps now is the moment to look at breathing life, new life into old clothes. Where should they start? And what possibly might they discover about themselves by learning these skills? What would be your, your kind of starter kit of advice to people? Flora, let's start with you. Um, well, I think darning is a great skill to learn. So I think if anyone's looking to start mending, um, start with some darning skills. And there are lots of guides available, whether YouTube videos or, or books or however you like to learn. And there's probably a local group that would help. Um, but darning is incredibly versatile and it can be single colour, it can be multicoloured, can have pattern added to it, but it's useful on almost anything. You know, it's great on knitwear, it's great on woven fabrics. I've seen people darning shoes, um, chair covers. So it's, it's a widely um, useful skill. And I think that's a great way to start. And all you need is a needle, some thread and a pair of scissors. And it's that simple. So I think it's a great, great one to learn with. And I think they'll enjoy the sense of calm it can bring once they get to grips with it. It's a slow process, but I think that slowness is something to really enjoy and appreciate. And I mean, you can do it watching Netflix if you want to, or you can listen to this podcast, which would be even better. <laughs> Excellent advice. Excellent advice. You can have something on the background while you go, or you can meditate on something else. You know what your gardening that you're, you know what food you're going to grow, or um, anything else while you work on it. So I think it's it allows you a bit of breathing space while you work. Mm. Yeah, that sounds like quite a good place for me to start. I have a friend of mine who lives in Belgium who makes socks. I'm like, it's like the dark arts or something. I'm like, how do you, how do you do, how do you take all of that wool in and turn it into an actual sock? It's like, honestly, the, the, the what's that thing called? The, the, the Hadron Collider is probably easier for me to understand than that. Uh, Ursula, what would your, your advice be to people? Um, where, where to start? Well, I guess shameless moment of self-promotion. I've written a whole book about where to start. Excellent. It's called Love Clothes Last and it's published by Penguin Life. But um, so my advice would be for those who don't want to or can't start doing things themselves. And, um, and that would be uh, create an app of who else is doing it. Find friends that enjoy doing it and offer, for instance, some uh, swaps. You know, you've got a jumper to be darned. You're not good at darning, but you might be brilliant at gardening. Find someone that fits the mirror. 
that and, and, and create some swaps. There are so many apps, you know, from uh, the Seam, Sojo app. Um, there are places to find people that can help you if you don't have the confidence to do it yourself. Your wardrobe might feel really overwhelming when you start from there because that is really the first gesture. Analyze what's wrong with your clothes and, and, and how can you fix them. Um, personally, myself, I have always found crochet to be the most versatile because not only can it go around holes, uh, but it sort of acts as a kind of an overlock. For the lazy uh, uh, clothes makers, it, it's fun. You can, you know, you can interrupt, make, you know, clothes hems and, and add things together and make holes. But, you know, it does take a little bit of practice. Great. Well, shameless promotion is all is all fine here, and we, we will put a link to the books, to both of your books, in the bottom of the podcast as well. So, thank you both so, so much for joining me. This has been absolutely glorious. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you. Thanks to everyone for listening, to Ben Adicott for his editing magic, and we hope you've loved this conversation, and the next time you open your clothes drawer or wardrobe, you'll look at it through new eyes. See you next time. Mm-hmm.